Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Are you ready to connect? Rishi Sika, welcome to the Groves Connection. Great to be here, Robert. Yeah, you know, I've been looking forward to this for so long, Rishi. You and I have known each other for some time. It goes all the way back to uh, Health Management Academy days. And uh, you've always been uh, uh, a person that I've respected so much for what you've accomplished in healthcare or the way you think about it. So uh, this is a real treat for me. I'm really looking forward to it. But I'm going to start way back. And I, you know, some of these questions I've never asked you before. So I'm, so I'm really interested to hear the answer. So uh, talk to me about where you grew up, you know, elementary school. What kind of kid were you? What was going on in your life? Yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks, Robert. The admiration and, and respect is mutual. So I, I, I thank you. had both a, a relationship that is professional, collegial, and then personal, which is just the... The trifecta. There it is. A trifecta. That's right. <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't ask yeah. for much more. So, so that, that's, that's been, that, that's been an awesome part of things. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, you know, I, my, my parents were from India. They immigrated to the United States in the early 1970s. And I was born in Brooklyn, New York, but spent most of my growing up in central New Jersey. I was, uh, although that's kind of like a hotbed right now, and, and for many years of, of a lot of people of Indian origin, I was probably one of the few uh, Indian people uh, growing up uh, through elementary school, school and high school. So mm. you know, that was probably an indelible part of my experience and, and in some ways impacts even my, my leadership style and leadership values uh, to this day. I started out in uh, remedial education and somehow, uh, wait, 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 wait. I have a hard time imagining you in remedial education. I, I, I can't fathom that. What, what's that about? Well, you asked about elementary school. So <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Something even less than the slow learner group, to be honest with you. And I, I think that was an experience that it's still kind of memorable. Some of those aspects that probably gave me this sense of determination and grit. Yeah. Yeah, you know, ended up being pretty important to not be. You know, I, mean, I hate to frame it like this to be categorized. Was the remedial learning part of just a cultural misunderstanding? I mean, I, I, I can't imagine you having your your insights are some of the best in healthcare. So I, it's hard for me to imagine that. So help me understand how that. You know, I think I think part of it was that I I genuinely was just really behind. Gotcha. Okay. I know the way my parents kind of looked at it, even though some people kind of maybe suggested to them much along the lines you were 
they were kind of like, you know, well, the public school system wants to give my son extra help. Well, we'll take it. Fair. Yeah. You know, there, there, there was a period of time where I thought I was going to be a doctor. You know, my mom is a doctor. Oh, yeah. And sometime around high school, uh, I kind of changed my mind and I became really determined that I wanted to go into business. Mm. And, you know, after high school, I ended up uh, going to Wharton undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania. Great school. Yeah. The classes that I found the most fulfilling and the most interesting were like around healthcare management, healthcare policy, healthcare economics. Yeah. I thought that one of the ways I could make a contribution in healthcare was by becoming a physician. And and like so many things in life, and I know you and I have talked about this, I was very fortunate to connect and have a mentor. Yes. He was, a, you know, back at that time, was one of the first MD, MBAs. He was a professor at Wharton at the School of Medicine. So so, so who is this you're, you're speaking of now? His name was Alan Hillman. Alan Hillman. So kind of at the last minute, I ended up you know, having this change in career paths. I did finish my, you know, Wharton degree, took my pre-med electives, and then ended up going to medical school on scholarship at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, from remedial education in elementary school to Wharton and Mayo. Yeah. So uh, something changed dramatically along the way. And by the way, mentors, I have not spoken to a single successful person, uh, at least in, in this context, that doesn't have at least one mentor who made a big difference in their lives. And I think it's important to recognize that. And that's why I asked for the name. Yeah. You know, we just need to recognize that we are dependent on other people in so many ways for the successes that we have. And and I think it's important to recognize that. But tell me about the transition. Uh, you know, you had to be at some point making excellent grades. Where, where, where did that transition happen for you? Probably around uh, towards the end of elementary school, middle school. So you did well in high school then. You know, again, and we're rewinding a little bit, you know, my freshman year, I ended up becoming very good friends with an upperclassman. He was a junior African-American guy by the name of Craig Warren, who kind of took me under his wing mm. yeah. uh, in terms of like, okay, here's the classes you should take. Here's the activities you should do. Yeah, yeah. Also gave me this real great lifelong habit of reading. Ah. And, uh, Craig is still a, a lifelong friend of of mine. Uh, I'm I'm godfather to his daughter. Yeah. These these people in your life, and you got this reaction going on in you, and then they they're like, instant. You know, it kind of accelerates it all. Yeah, yeah. So key. All right. So now we are at Mayo. <laughs> In medical school, talk to us about that time in your life. Did it turn out to be what you expected? How did you decide, you know, how am I going to specialize? Walk us through uh, medical education. Super tough. You know, I didn't have like a big science background. Oh, yeah. So coming in, very small school. Back at the time, I think I had 28 or 30 people in my graduating class. Wow. I mean, it, it's very... A lot of scrutiny going on there. You're under the microscope. Uh, that, that That's for sure. An extraordinarily patient-centric culture. And I've never, ever again been in a place where they make it so easy to take care of patients. Mm. Like logistics, the infrastructure, all of that was just so, so designed to to enable people to care. Yeah. You know, after Mayo, you know, the environments I worked in, you know, to care for patients was like really hard. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, but but at Mayo that wasn't the case, and and to see how a truly patient centric culture 
you know, works was, was extraordinary. So that, that piece around cultural values was, was really big. A couple other big experiences. So when I got there, you know, you had to select a faculty advisor. So on a dare, one of my classmates asked me to ask the CEO of the CEO of Mayo Clinic, Robert Waller, to be my faculty. (laughs) I, uh, I took him up on the dare, Yeah, went up to this assistant and said, I'd like a meeting with Dr. Waller. And she looks at the camera and she says, would you like it next week or the week thereafter? And then she looks at me and she says, who the hell are you? Explained <laughs> who I was and that I was like, wanted to ask him to be my faculty advisor. And she said, okay, why don't you write a little note and I will get it to him. So I wrote like a nice letter, you know, asking him to be my faculty advisor. And I stopped by her office every week for like three months. Wow. Started bringing like pastries too, right? <laughs> a very wise decision. I don't I mean. know. Maybe it wasn't three months. Maybe it was six weeks, seven weeks, whatever. Yep. She finally said, I'm going to get you 15 minutes with him and that's it. And it's all on you. And, uh, you know, 15 great minutes. He agreed to be my faculty advisor. We met once a quarter for my entire career at Mayo. Wow. I still have those meetings, uh, you know, uh, if you don't ask, you'll never know. That's right. And, and, and the other lesson that is clear in that uh, story is um, if people know that you're really committed, if you're persistent and you don't go away, huge, huge thing. That persistence piece is also key. You don't want to badger, but you just want to say, I'm interested. Okay, I'm still interested. I'm still interested. And that's, you know, two great lessons in that story. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great reminder. You know, kind of some people have described me in the management context like I'm a dog on a bone. Yeah. For my last two years in medical school, I moonlighted as a medical reporter for our NBC affiliate in Rochester, Minnesota. Oh wow, that must have been fascinating. Very fascinating. You know, what I learned then was I learned you know some doing some basics of reporting and video editing and voiceovers, and then obviously on screen stuff. And you know what it meant for me, and I can look back on it is it taught me how to communicate really sophisticated stuff to a lay audience. Yeah, yeah. And a mass communication, which, you know, in the past couple of years has become really important. Yes. And if you want to know how that opportunity came real quick, I was at the second year of medical school presenting, you know, they had this sort of intro to history taking kind of class. Right. I presented my patient to my attending. They called them consultants at Mayo Clinic. And at the end of my presentation, he said, great presentation. You have a great voice. You should be on television. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's very nice of you to say. He said, no, I'm serious. My sister-in-law is the anchor of the evening news. I'm going to introduce you guys. Oh, my gosh. uh, Mayo had a pretty unique curriculum. In your third year, you get four to five months off to do anything you want. Wow. So I made sure my four to five months lined up in the winter, and I was not going to spend it in Rochester. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Always thinking, Rishi, always thinking. So I ended up spending about five months at uh, Prudential Healthcare. Oh my gosh, what an interesting choice. Yeah. Prudential had a healthcare division and it was mostly in HMO and managed care. Yeah. And research division headed by Jeff Copeland. Jeff uh, ended up going to become the director of CDC a couple years later, but um, ended up working with uh, becoming introduced and again, a lifelong mentor and Dr. Ron Obear, um, brilliant uh, PhD epidemiologist and researcher. Mm-hmm. And he taught me how to work with big data, mm-hmm. how to code SAS, the statistical programming language, 
uh, he, he he taught me so much uh, about about research and data and data analysis. Uh, he ended up hiring me as a consultant when he was at Medco while I was a resident. So I ended up doing consulting around data and health outcomes research when I was in residency, uh, also when I was a junior attending. Um, and, and we've had kind of a lifelong collaboration since then. And you know, the skills he taught me on data analysis and health outcomes research were just invaluable. Yeah, you know, this is a, uh, what you just described is, is sort of a tour de force of what mentorship means to the individual who is being mentored. And I love the fact that you're recognizing that and valuing those relationships. And then there were a couple of things that I wanted to say about uh, the points that you made along the way. Uh, one is, uh, I remember my mentor, one of my mentors, John Hensing at, at uh, Manor Health, uh, told me one time when I asked him, you know, uh, how did you get into your position? What, what was different about you that, that you were chosen as the, uh, what would have been at the time the chief medical officer, but what today would be considered the chief clinical officer of Banner Health, uh, which is, you know, over all of the clinical programs, essentially. And he said, Robert, it's one thing. It's the ability to communicate your ideas and uh, engage people in uh, uh, considering the possibility that you might be right. Yeah. And communication is the key to all of that. That's my differentiator. I got nothing special beyond that. I disagree with him and he had nothing special beyond that, but there is no doubt that he was brilliant at communication. And uh, you just reemphasize that, uh, that, that one point. So when anybody asks me, what's the number one uh, uh, thing you need for leadership? My first answer is ethics and value. But the second answer, uh, is uh, the ability to communicate that, uh, yeah. and I think that's so important. Now I, I want to go to the uh, the next stage now. So you're getting out of Mayo, and how did you make decisions around? I'm going to subspecialize, or I'm going to go to work, or you know, what was that first? What's your first foray after getting that MD degree? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of I wasn't sure if I was going to do residency when I was kind of going through because you know I, I always want to combine the business and the clinical, but. Really felt like my journey wasn't done yet okay. on the clinical aspect, and I I thought I wanted to go into surgery. Gotcha. Okay. You know, as I was sort of trying to make this decision, I remember that I talked to a lot of surgeons, you know, and I asked them, "How did you make the decision? What do you need to go through it?" And one of the questions I asked almost every surgeon I talked to was, "If you had, if you had anything you could do with your free time." If you have an hour of time, if you have two hours of time, if you could do anything with your free time, what would you do? And, and Robert, the answer I invariably want was operate. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That's the kind of surgeon I want. But but I realized that wasn't the kind of person I was. Yeah. I want to go ride my bike, read a book, work out, cook. Yeah. That was not going to gel for me. So I, I really wasn't sure what the heck I was going to do. I was thinking, oh, I'll do internal medicine as a backstop, which is totally different from surgery. But I thought I'd give one more specialty a try that I hadn't been exposed to, and that was emergency medicine. I ended up doing an away rotation. It's like August of my fourth year. And this is really late. I mean, I hadn't even decided what I was going to do. Yes, that is late. <laughs> an emergency medicine rotation at Bellevue in New York City. Ooh. Probably the, the opposite side of the galactic universe for Rochester, Minnesota. That is the opposite end of the spectrum, and it is sink or swim, you know? Figured if I was going to be exposed to it and see, I needed to go to one of these iconic places yep. and have that experience. I liked it. 
I liked it a lot. I liked the diversity um, of of patients and problems and challenges. I liked the people. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was something I thought I could see myself doing. Yeah, yeah. I remember I came back to Rochester in September, and I'm like, okay, I want to change all my applications from surgery to internal medicine to emergency medicine, and I'm positive that we're going to do this. Yeah. Um, ended up doing an intern year in internal medicine in New York City again. Right. The right. furthest thing from Mayo Clinic. I mean, I remember my first shift there at St. Vincent's in the ED. Uh, I, I was in the ER for my first month in my medicine rotation. Yeah, yeah. Substance abuse, HIV, AIDS. This was back when AIDS. Was a big deal, yeah. Right? Death sentence often. Yeah, so totally different world. And then I did my emergency medicine residency, PGY 2 through 4 program, three years at the old Boston City Hospital, Boston Medical Center. Yep. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved that place. Stayed on as an attending for four years. Yeah, yeah. Um, just fabulous place, fabulous people, so mission driven. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so. Look, let me ask. Uh, let me clarify a little bit. So, um, you shift from surgery to emergency medicine. You do your emergency medicine training, go all the way through fellowship. And then you're a practicing attending physician in emergency medicine. Is that correct? Yeah. And yeah. how long did you do that? How long were you, you know, just a doc? Uh, well, never just a doc because you probably always had directorships or whatever else. 10 to 15 years as an attending. Something Is that like. right? Wow. I didn't realize you had practiced that long. I estimated because I worked in busy places in Boston and then Chicago. Um, I did a pretty accurate back of the envelope calculation over my career as an attending, not as a resident, yeah. as an attending. I estimate I've, I'd seen somewhere between twenty to 25,000 patients. Yeah. I, I mean, I tell you what, at places that you trained, it didn't take long to do that. I, I, I want to say something else about that. There's a, uh, there are uh, levels of membership <laughs> in uh, doctor society, right? Yeah. And uh, you were very wise to, to continue on uh, to a residency because- Folks that have just gotten an MD, it's like, yeah, all right, they're a doctor. Maybe they're Dinos, doctors in name only. Yeah. Uh, you know, they don't get the same respect as somebody who has gone through all of the trials and tribulations and then put their reputation on the line in practice. You know, that's how you're fully into the club. Whether that's right or wrong, your credibility has benefited immensely from your history of actually doing what doctors do. When you're medical student, you think, oh, I know everything. But, you know, that transition to residency <laughs> is, is a really big one, right? You think, oh, there's no real benefit to being an attending, but there is a real big end because you don't have that safety net. Exactly. One thing, though, I think that has kind of changed a little bit is I think the, the MD degree is becoming like the law degree now. Yeah. Where a lot of people go to law school and never practice law. Yep. Yep. You know? It's not as common back when I was going through it, but now it's like super duper common that people go to medical school and then they launch into a very different career path yep. um, with residency. And it's not only is that I think more acceptable, unless you're going to sort of do, you know, um, clinical leadership work. I want to fast forward a little bit now to get to uh, your your career uh, on the uh, administrative side of the coin or the leadership side of the coin, how did that occur? And uh, you know, talk to us, talk us through. Uh, you wound up at Advocate at, at one point. Uh, was that directly from your attending position? How did that happen? While I was an attending, you know, I, I worked for a startup in California. Good. I ended up then starting a startup in the data and analytics space or, or health search space um, as well when I was in Boston. So. 
you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is like, even while I was going down this clinical path, I'm, you know, even from medical school and then residency doing consulting and this stuff as an attending, I'm kind of, I'm kind of nurturing this passion or this other interest in the administrative right. the whole time. It never left you. Yeah. It never left. It never left. Yeah. You know, after four years in Boston, my wife and I, we decided, you know, she grew up mostly in Chicago that we were going to go back to Chicago. And I ended up taking a straight clinical job at a hospital on the South side, Advocate Christ Medical Center. Right. Mm -hmm. The busiest trauma center, not only in Chicago, but in the state of Illinois. Yeah. It was a very busy place. Very busy place. So I, I joined the faculty there, straight up clinical. You know, after about two or three months, they had an opening for director of performance improvement for the emergency department. You know, uh, they, were, they wanted one of the faculty, one of the staff to, you know, help with quality improvement in the emergency department. And I, so about two or three months in, and I applied for the role and I got it. I really didn't have any direct experience in quality improvement. Right. But I had this tremendous experience in data. Mm being able to look at things statistically, program myself, all that kind of stuff. And uh, this is back when there were these, you all remember the core measures about time to antibiotics for pneumonia, diagnosis. Oh, yes. Pneumonia, time to AMI, all of that. And, uh, you know, honestly, we were kind of lagging in all of those kind of areas. And I applied some data. I did time motion analyses. I found the pain points, what distinguished great performance for not good designed some interventions, worked with the docs in the department, and it turned around with a great team, um, all the performance yeah, yeah. measures for the emergency department. So the CEO of the hospital sees that and he's like, this is great. You just turned around all the core measures. You did a great job. I'd like you to do that with a hospital. Yes. Uh -huh. With Advocates flagship, right? The biggest hospital, the most complex. Right. Uh -huh. The CEO of the hospital, Ken Lucard, who, who, plucked me out of the emergency department and gave me this ring to do that work for the whole hospital. Um, he has been an accelerant to my career. Yes. Just, just doing that and at that age, taking me and believing in me and frankly, seeing something in me that I didn't necessarily see. And yes. 10, uh, we turned around performance and ended up making Christ, Advocate Christ, a top 100 hospital back when... I think that was true in your solution. I can't remember who was doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then the folks at Advocate Corporate saw that. And they're thinking the same thing. Can you do it for the system? Right. I mean, it just, yeah. You know, I, I'll tell you one of the things that got me a lot of visibility when I was doing that role for the hospital, this was back when readmissions were a big thing. I guess they still right, are. Right. Yeah. And I was leading this team to improve readmissions and the team said, you know, should we had a tool to predict somebody being readmitted. And I said, well, you know what? I've got some data background. I know how to program in SAS. And um, I uh, I built a readmission predictive model. Wow. That is so cool. Programmed it myself. We did some great work with some folks uh, at the advocate team. And that got me an additional level of visibility where then the corporate folks, you know, Jim Skogsberg, Lee Sachs, Bill Sanchuli kind of plucked me out. You know, again, Ken gave me that platform and that visibility. Yeah. And... Uh, I ended up taking on a role at Advocate, you know, just 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 leading a tremendous team and a tremendous group in a, in a, in a great organization. So you're an advocate now, and you have demonstrated your ability to 
with all of the stuff that you've learned, you know, a lot of it autodidacted, I guess, because you were so interested in business from the get-go, a lot of it mentors accelerating that pathway along the way. And you've got this skill set now that you, for the first time, have been able to apply it broadly. Yeah. And that has elevated you to the level where the system is now interested in your skill set. And so uh, walk us through what that was like. Were there things that surprised you about that next level of leadership? Were there things that you wish you had done differently? Uh, for those who are aspiring to that level of leadership, what, 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 what are the secret sauces along the way? What helped you? What didn't? You know, the places where I worked in the emergency department, particularly Boston Medical Center, you were always leading a team. Yes, right? indeed. I think ED physicians, um, that's something that should be kind of recognized is yeah. the, the best ones are, and they recognize that they're, they're mobilizing and they're deploying resources and they're mentoring and they're educating and they're doing all that at the same time. So that was present. I'd say the other thing, and I, I can't underestimate this, is I was extraordinarily blessed to have met, um, and uh, and I think you and I have talked about this, having an executive coach, uh, Dr. Yes. Dr. Don Rath. And Don was an emergency medicine physician by background, so that was a great common base. We met when I was at Advocate Christ. And uh, he also was a senior executive at Alina, you know, kind of back in the day. So he, he had all those those aspects. Um, and he had some good understanding of the organization. <clears throat> but one of the most important things he did was also just sort of really own who I am as a leader. Uh -huh. Having that level of insight and self-reflection, and, and I would say it's a journey that never really ends, I think, if you're going to be a, if you're going to do leadership and if you want to you know, sort of practice the craft. Um, but but he was certainly an accelerant, like, like Ken, like Ron. Yes. You know, throughout, and I, that resonates with me uh, so very deeply because I, in one of the discoveries I've made along the way, is you're right, it's a lifetime commitment. And uh, one of the discoveries that I've made along the way is that the more I become myself, the more effective I am, and the happier I am with the decisions that I make. And there's the, you know, it's it's almost a necessary part of leadership development that you. You start by emulating others to some extent. You know, you look at what they do and you try to emulate that. But over time, it sounds like you've discovered, uh, and, and I have too, with lots of mentorship and coaching, and you do know a little bit. And it is okay to express your personal opinions about things. And it is okay to say the things that you know to be true from your own experience. And that doesn't mean you're not open to being wrong, because gosh, you better be, because uh, uh, the world changes and beliefs held too tightly can be a hindrance instead of a help. But you still have to embody your own personhood as a leader. If not, it is always going to be a, a facsimile of somebody else's style. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to be a different, you know, my coach Don says, otherwise, you're going to be a different person in different times and with different people. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's important from a communication perspective. It's important from a management perspective. It's important from a decision making perspective. You know, I, I, I believe that when you're a senior leader in an organization, the decisions you are making should not be easy ones because easy decisions should have been made somewhere else lower in the chain, right? So the decisions you're, you're seeing are fundamentally very hard and they are probabilistic. Right. You know, if I do this, there's a 30% chance this could happen, 50% chance this could happen, a 20% this could happen. If I do this, there's a, you know, 40% chance. You know, yes. I believe that a way to make those decisions 
is to do that in accord with values. And to do that in accord with values, you have to know who you are and what your values are. And what I've found is when I do that, or when I sort of have an opportunity to coach my leaders or others to do that, if if you can look at the probabilistic decision and, and, and look at the actual facts, right? And, you know, an assessment of that. But then if it's like a judgment call, or if it's gray, where you're not certain, and if you can rely on making a values-based decision, even though it may not go right, and if it doesn't go right, you know, you have to pick it up quickly and you have to remediate as fast as possible, right? But if it doesn't go right, if you made that decision in accord with values and values that are articulated, understood, and hopefully part of the common belief system, it's very hard to fault. Yeah. You know, in some ways, doing that work with a coach is almost like therapy. Yes, it is. Very similar. I think that's super duper important, um, especially as you sort of continue in terms of the gradation of responsibility um, and... Uh, and accountability and anxiety in an organization. Yeah, you know, I, it, it's interesting. I, I've had lots of opportunities over the course of my career to participate in, and you know, the organization provided some of this, you know, with with coaches, uh, with coach training, you know, training to be uh, a coach, you know, a, an internal coach for, for Banner. And, and those things really taught me a lot. And you're right, it's not all that different from therapy. And, and the, 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 the two things that that I go back to all the time, and folks that listen to this podcast will have heard me say this ad nauseum probably, but I'm I'm going to say it again because I think it's important stuff. And and there were two concepts that I thought were really important to me as a leader. And one is because it helps diffuse my frustration or my anger or my uh, uh, poor response sometimes if I'm not uh, uh, completely aligned uh, is curiosity. Instead of getting angry, I was, you know, asking myself, why would somebody say something like that? What is their belief system that they would think that to be true? Yes. Uh, and curiosity has been a very powerful tool for me. And the other one is, I remember, and this was again, Dr. Hensing telling me early on, I was very upset with somebody who was w making what I thought was a very foolish decision. And how could they? And I was going to uh, have a confrontation with them. And, and Dr. Hensing took me aside. He said, Robert, there's almost nothing worth destroying a relationship over. There's almost nothing worth that. Uh, you know, you'll live to fight another day. This is not the end of the world. Uh, maintain your relationships, stay connected. And that's where uh, that fundamental piece of my philosophy comes from. Yeah, and it really is good advice, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't heard that articulated like that, and I, I probably agree 95 to 99% of the time. Ninety-five. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Ninety-five. We'll go with that. Uh, but I, but uh, you know, leadership is is uh, one of those things that I think is in short supply in healthcare nowadays. I wonder about this. In a leadership team, I think diversity of thought and perspective is extremely important. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is also an era that we are going through as a country of profound political polarization, and the value basis is very different. Yeah. Because of that degree of polarization that now exists, I think, and a perception, which may or may not be correct, that there is a values basis to that polarization, I think that makes, I think it makes for something very problematic on teams. Yeah. And I'm sort of just yeah. thinking about just in terms of the, the dialogue and dynamics of the of the United States right now. No, I, I could not agree with you more, Rishi. And I, I when I think about this, uh, 
I can't help but think that answers that work are very often, if not almost always, between the two extremes. Uh, and and to latch on to one and to be so closed-minded about that, that there's absolutely nothing that could change one's mind um, that is a guarantee of access uh, to some extent. I mean, if you're not open to new data, then you're, you've lost your ability to be adaptable. And, you know, at the, it's not to be too Darwinian, but, you know, it's not survival of uh, uh, the fittest as you come out with it. It's a, a survival of those organisms that are most able to adapt to a changing environment. That's really what the message is in evolution. And I think it's true of social evolution as well. And when we get polarized on one extreme or another and have lost our ability to listen and to be curious about, you know, why others would think that, we've lost the ability to adapt to the circumstances and therefore lost the ability to be maximally effective. I agree with your points there. And, you know, I'd say that just to expand and plus one on it, you know, because you've referenced now this idea of curiosity a couple of times, there, there are two corollary traits to that too. Um, one is growth mindset, you know, Carol Dweck's book. Right. The other sort of a corollary or similar to curiosity uh, intellectual humility. Oh. Jim Collins and Good to Great talks about these ideas of, you know, like, you know, humility with sort of fortitude. Adam Grant in his last book also talks about humble confidence. Um, and I think if you tease apart these ideas, uh, you know, actually uh, the, the, the concepts of, of psychological safety, this idea of intellectual <laughs> also, you know, leaders require fortitude and they require conviction, right? This this dog on a bone, this persistence. Right. But you're balancing this idea that I don't know all the answers. Yeah. I'm going to be brave enough to ask questions, even if it makes me seem foolish. Yes. That's so what you're saying resonates a lot. Yeah. No. And, and it, you know, it's interesting. As you were talking, I was thinking about how um, common it is for folks to get behind somebody who is absolutely certain that they're right how easy that is to do versus somebody who says, well, you know, I think this is the direction we should be headed, but we should be open to new ideas, which is far more effective in the big picture. Yeah. And, and so there's this balancing act of how do you rally people to support whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish yeah. while at the same time not overhyping it because you could be wrong, you know, that intellectual humility. And I think the answer, uh, in, in at least in my book, the only thing I've come up with, the answer has to be value-based. You know, it has to be value-based because you don't know for sure, but you can hang your hat on values. And and not everyone's values will be the same, but it is not difficult to find in any group some values that align well. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've read any of uh, Jonathan uh, Haidt's work on uh, yes. uh, value systems, and it's fascinating. It really is. Uh, and and that, he, he had the intellectual curiosity to say, well, you know, I'm a liberal and I've always been a liberal, but why? And yep. does the other side have something to say? And what he discovered is that, yes, they do have something to say. Right. It might be taken to excess in its extremes. So is it taken to excess on the left in its extremes. But both sides have something to say that's valuable. Let's tease that out and figure out how to find that middle ground. Agreed. Well, I don't know how we got on this, but this was great. I know. I love these conversations. I really do. And they're so important. I, you know, 
the, the loss of trust in institutions in this country, uh, you know, is related to all the things we're talking about. If you tell people with absolute certainty a mask is going to protect you, uh, and then the data comes out, and it's like, well, you know, in some circumstances, maybe, and other circumstances, maybe not. And nuance is the way the world works, and, and to ignore that, uh, well, you do it at your peril because you're going to be wrong enough of the time that people will lose confidence. That's right. That's very true. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit I, I, um, how that translated into the role that you and I met uh, at the Health Management Academy. I guess we were trying to figure out what year that was. It was 2011, I think. What point in your career were you at Advocate when you attended the Health Management Academy? What would you say about that experience and uh, how has your life changed since then? Yeah, so I was in my first year in my corporate role, uh, my system role. Gotcha, okay. Um, I'd already been an advocate, I think, for two two or three years, I think, uh, the, at our large hospital, uh, Advocate Christ. Uh, so it was it was a really important pivot point, you know, I'm going to sort of system level responsibility and, you know, in addition to the fellowship and then the education and the network, again, speaking of mentors, you know, tremendous mentorship by the late Gary Bisbee. Oh my was, gosh. Yes. He helped so many. He did so much for so many. Uh, that uh, I, I couldn't go without acknowledging. Rishi, I thank you for bringing that up. I, you know, I... Uh, there's a big hole where Gary used to be, and uh, for those who do, do not know, he uh, uh, he uh, died suddenly, and and uh, uh, none of us were prepared for it. I don't know how you ever prepare for something like that. It was unexpected, and uh, and it left a big hole because he was one of those folks that just helped so many people. There was so much of an outpouring of love. Uh, you know, I, 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 you know, we all go back, I guess, and to some extent say, I wish I'd said this, I wish I'd said that more, I wish I'd, you know, uh, but I, I think Gary uh, knew how much we all respected him and loved him and, and uh, uh, he'll be missed. Yeah, thank you for reminding us. But when I think back about the leadership lessons I learned from Gary, um, and it speaks to something that you said just a little while ago, um, connection. He was all about that. Absolutely. Yes. It always felt personal with Gary. I mean, and he always cared about the tiniest. I mean, I was shocked because I'd been out of health management for a little bit. And I, I just kind of asked him, hey, would you mind meeting with me for an hour? Oh, sure. You know, let's have lunch. And I was like, wow, I had no idea. And it, it felt like he knew me yeah. uh, and, and uh, like he took an interest in what I was interested in and wanted to help me. It was an amazing experience. And a great lesson for all of us in leadership. Tremendous. Tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. That was really important. And, and you know, look, I, I, I will always say that an advocate is where I kind of grew up as a leader. Yeah. How to be a leader in terms of operating model and dashboards and cascading of metrics and managing performance. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a very well-run organization. Yeah. That's where I grew up. I learned the systems. I learned the approach. And, and it was something you know, I ended up bringing with me then in my my future roles that I think was just, uh, again, sort of pivotal and catalytic. Again, thanks to mentorship as well along the way. Yes, yes. So uh, I guess now what I want to ask, and we, we do, I think I've got it right this time. We've got about 10 minutes left. So let me ask you this. It's a big question, and I, I don't expect a simple answer, but what do you see as the fundamental problem in, in the healthcare system today and what can 
any of us do to begin to right the ship? What what needs to be done? Just so we tell your viewers, you didn't exactly tee this up in advance with me so that I could like, you know, <laughs> I like spontaneity. I, you know, it sounds sorry. like you want a single answer. And, you know, I'm, I, I think about, um, you know, there's certainly a business model challenge. The, the perspective of working through and navigating as a patient and consumer, even if you're a super user or you know the system is extremely painful, extremely difficult. Uh, yeah, that that's true. The cost of healthcare is problematic um, as well. I, I could gravitate to all of these things, and yeah. if I had to boil it down to one idea, it would be that the trust in the system is broken. Yeah, and I'm talking about the trust that exists between. Healthcare doctors, healthcare and employees, healthcare patients, healthcare community. Yeah. But the rallying cry, there's this phrase that they use at SC Johnson. SC Johnson, totally different company. Um, you know, they do Windex and Raid and lots of stuff. Um, they use a phrase that they are there to champion the trust agenda. Good. And if you can embrace that, and you ask what that means, I think that leads to a whole sort of strategies and tactics that perhaps have not always been envisioned, we haven't always been authentic to, or if we are, we've been kind of doing it because, oh, we're worried about disruptors, we're worried about market share, we're worried about unionization. See, it's not like you're responding to a threat. You're actually embracing a value. Got it. That makes a whole lot of sense. I think that would lead to a different way of leadership. If that's your North Star, you make very different decisions as opposed to, I want to maximize profit. I guess it's cultural and values-based, and it comes down to trust. And you were talking about trust just a little while ago. That's a brilliant insight. I love that. I love that because without it, nothing else will be accomplished. Yep. That's just the bottom line. I, it has been such a joy to talk to you, Rishi. I hope you will agree to come back and and uh, be on the show again because there's so much we could talk about. And uh, you're one of my favorite people to talk to. I love the way you think. I love the way you make me think. So like once again, Rishi, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. And uh, 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 wishing you all the best. And we'll talk again soon. That was great, Robert. Thank you for having me here. And with that, we're going to say so long. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going, and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Groves Connection.